and welcome to the Wharton Alumni Founders and Funders Association podcast. I'm Jerry Houston, co-president of the Wharton Alumni Founders and Funders Association, or WAFA for short. We're a new Wharton Alumni Club with the mission to increase the number of Wharton women founders and the number of Wharton women who get funded. Every month, we host events which feature guest speakers on topics important to founders. To stay up to date on WAFA events or to learn more about how you can get involved, visit hellowafa.org. I have a special request for all of the alumni founders out there. We want to get to know you. Visit hellowafa.org and click on Female Founded Companies in the top navigation. There's a short form you can fill out so we can learn all about you and your company. This podcast is a recording of a fireside chat with Bjorn Osti, the co-founder of Oatly, the popular brand of oat milk, and Deus Capital founder, Shannon Grant. Bjorn explains how he and his brother cataloged the oat genome and worked on Oatly for years before their seemingly overnight success. It's great to be reminded of all of the work and years of science that goes into your favorite coffee condiment. I hope you enjoy this one. survey of everyone in the room. How many people here, has everyone here tried Oatly? Everyone? Who here can actually buy it at Whole Foods without it being sold out? <laughs> One. How do you do that? Where do you, what, what's your secret? My wife calls it every single morning. Yeah? And the reason why you can't find it is because she doesn't raise the Oatly. Do you? Yeah, and I know where they stock it. Thursday morning. So Thursday mornings is a secret. Okay. Thursday morning. It's all made up at Whole Foods. So. Sharing secrets right here. Okay. Well, good. Well, um, we have Bjorn Oste, co-founder and CEO, um, CEO of Oatly here today. Not CEO. Not CEO. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Co-founder. Yeah. You and your brother. Okay. Right. You and your brother at this. Yeah. And he's actually. So this is. Um, our monthly um, Wharton Alumni Founders and Funders t- um, Association talk here at Canopy. And this is our first male founder that we've had. So welcome. And in honor of that, um, we'd just love to talk a little bit about your story. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, that's the goal of today. So you've been at this for a while. Yes. yes. <laughs> Um, you established the first patent made from, from Oats in 1994, is that right? I have my dates right. Um, busy at R&D after that. Then you launched officially in 2001. First 10 years was quite the struggle. Yep. And so just walk us through what happened like 1994 sure. through present day. Yeah. So I, as I usually say, it's all my brother's fault, right? I mean, had it not been for him, I wouldn't have been pulled into this ordeal for so long, but he's a professor in food scientist, uh, professor in food chemistry and a scientist at the uh, university back in, in Sweden. And when he was a young student, the story goes back to the 60s, really, because when he was a young student, his professor discovered lactose intolerance. So he grew up academically in a world where 
okay, milk is a great food, but it also has a lot of issues, right? And uh, interestingly enough, uh, working academically, of course, at an institute that discovered lactic intolerance, it's all about how do we fix dairy? How do we fix this problem? Um, but in the 80s, when he really started looking into uh, this more in detail, it was also, it's not just how we fix dairy. Turns out that there has a lot of other issues, right? Not just lactose. It's, yeah. it's uh, dairy protein allergies. It's kind of a big issue in certain parts of the world. It affects maybe one, two percent of the population. Most babies that have it will eventually grow out of it, but it creates a, a large uh, lifestyle problem for those families affected, right? So that was when you come from a Swedish perspective that has among the lowest prevalence of lactose intolerance on the planet combined with the, among the highest per capita consumption of dairy. It's not really an ideal market. <laughs> dairy is holy. Don't mess with my milk. Uh, but because of non-dairy, I'm sorry, because of dairy protein allergies and things like that, there, there was always a need. And then, of course, in the 90s, we started to all understand that maybe there's a big bigger picture, bigger problem with dairy. Sustainability, I mean, uh, carbon dioxide yeah. emissions, right? And of course, more of the animal, animal husbandry practices and techniques. As people are starting realizing that, hmm, maybe they're not just these cute little animals chewing grass on the fields that we see in the pictures. They are, right? Except they're never there. Those are stage pictures. And so all these things started combining in the early 90s to, we got to fix this, we got to do something here, and let's make a better, more optimal milk. And that, that sort of was a challenge to trigger my brother and his team of scientists, and, and uh, looking at plants. So what is milk, whether it's plant-based or animal-based, it's the only liquid that's a complete food. That would be a good definition of a milk, right? You can live on it provides you with protein, fat, and carbohydrates. I would like to say that, like, for example, a beer is not true. It doesn't provide you all that. You can't live off it, although I think, you know. Have you tried? Sure, we sure like <laughs> to try, right? But that distinguishes not for breakfast. a meal. Yeah. Beer clock. Uh, that's what distinguishes a milk, is that it provides you with all the macronutrients, and ideally in a, in a good mix and whatnot. But what food scientists have discovered is that milk has completely wrong proportions of everything, way too much protein, completely wrong type of fat. You know, so, so what do we do? Then we start rebuilding milk. We take away the fat, and, and now we take away the lactose too. So, why do we go through all this super complex, expensive, polluting mechanism, industrial process to produce an imperfect product that we put more energy into trying to fix and then go out and sell it? It's like, it's not a smart way to go about it. Right? Let's look at what we want. We want liquid form, we want protein, fat, carbohydrate, we want them in the right proportions and on the right quality. So that was the sign, if you like, the design what, where do I find that in the plant world? Ideally, it should be from plants that we all, as humans, can relate to, that are widely grown across the planet, and, you know, with very few allergens associated to it. And with that design brief in hand, there are not many options around. 
And as it happens, oats is one of the best options, the most nutritious cereal of all. Um, it also comes with added benefit of some really healthy dietary fibers that are pretty unique, right? So, so which obviously milk doesn't have any dietary fiber at all. So if you can combine the nutritional properties of oats um, um, <clears throat> with the functional properties of dairy, you have a winner. And that took about five years of trial and horror, I should say. And, and um, first patents were filed in 94, 95-ish. At that time, uh, I was actually in the software industry. I had a completely different journey. I, I, I've been a computer security specialist, which is a very logical preparation or preparatory ground for going into non-dairy. <laughs> it helps, but, but uh, that, that's what I did. And, and uh, was lucky and fortunate to be able to, to uh, do an exit with my software company and started thinking, well, now then, what do I do now? And started looking at my brother's outworld invention here, a glass of oat milk. Can you believe that? Can you really imagine? Uh, it, we thought it tasted great. We took it proudly to uh, the head of R&D for the biggest dairy in Northern Europe. And he uh, uh, proceeded to spit it out in the sink and said, unsellable. That's really? The, yeah. You didn't tell me that part of the story. Well, <laughs> I didn't oh. have more than a minute, right? Yeah. Oh my gosh. No, so you're right. Anyway, okay. that's when we realized that we got to do it. Well, after we he spit it, it out. Oh. That we was the impetus yeah. for starting the product. We got to do this. <laughs> really? Yeah. Because Wait. he's wrong. <laughs> so it's really we more like about it. proving someone wrong than about uh, creating the rest. I think it was also maybe, I don't know, was he scared? Well, I don't know. Yeah. Something, but he spit it out in the sink in not very polite terms, <laughs> declaring that, you know, this is unsellable. Forget it, boys. Turn around and walk out of there. Wow. Okay. Well, fast forward 20 years. Could you speak up just a little bit? This is so compelling, and we're, we're struggling a little bit. Okay. I wonder if I should, should move we... forward a little bit, too? Yeah. Can yeah. walk here? So then, as part of this R&D process, you started to, you and your brother started to map out the human genome. Or, uh, sorry, not the human genome, the oat genome. Yeah, yeah. We, we, so, so. Wrong talk. Yeah. No, we didn't. We didn't tackle the human. <laughs> you didn't tackle the human. That, that was actually the already done. Right? <laughs> and, and an interesting side note to that is that the oat genome is infinitely more complicated and much larger than the human genome. When you came up with twenty-eight hundred different varieties of oats mm -hmm. in this process, mm -hmm. walk us through that. <laughs> Well, when you're on a, I lost you count become, after five. Yeah, when you become an oat nerd, you, you, you're like, you know, you go all in, right? Um, let, let me ask, before I go to that, say that when I came from my computer security background launching into oatmeal, and we had no clue what to do with it other than we're going to launch it, right? Uh, but you start thinking, the people in the world, I mean, Sweden, we're a big oat country, right? Oats and dairy. So, anyway. But what about the rest of the world? What do you guys know about oats? I mean, we were myopic, we had no clue. Turns out that oat grows all over the world, and I don't think there's not one culture, whether it's uh, 
a nomad tribe in Eastern Africa or in the Andes or uh, the, uh, the northern Chinese uh, regions of Mongolia, Inner Mongolia. There's not one region in the world where oath is not associated as being healthy. Yeah. And there's another fun part of that too, the term spreading your oats or <laughs> derivatives thereof is also used around the world. So there is a very strong health connotation to it. And, and we thought that was, for me, that was just an eye opener. And then of course you start looking into all kinds of, where does it grow, where, where you know, where is, what are the differences between oats and oats? And you find that oats are not oats are not oats. If you start looking closer, there are thousands of varieties of oats. And uh, so that's when we started with another scientific group of scientists to put together uh, a structure, start looking into this. And we collected a library of 2,800 oat varieties. Yeah. And when you deploy smart Gen uh, knowledge about the gen genome, right? You can start identify and see that there are varieties, naturally occurring varieties with twice the amount of protein or three times the amount of fat or, you know, half the amount of fiber, whatever. So uh, really fascinating yeah. animal. And another good thing with oats that we discovered is that nobody ever cared about oats before, right? VASF, uh -huh. Monsanto, all those evil empires, they looked at big cash crops, corn, soy, wheat, uh, and love to do GMO and do all kinds of fun stuff, right? But nobody ever cared about oats, because oats, it's just, you know, 80% of oats is sold for horse feed. So who cares? Really? 80% of oats were sold for horse feed? 70 to 80% of all oat production worldwide is... Today, currently. Currently is used for animal feed. And the rest go to you. And the rest, <laughs> the rest will go to me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. We're starting to make some indents in world oat uh, because there's only a small portion used for human consumption, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and that is actually processed uh, differently. There are different meals and whatnot. They handle a bit more carefully. And, and this, we're starting to create a shortage of milling capacity. Wow. But we're addressing that too. There's some interesting aspect. Farmers love to grow oats because it's an excellent rotational crop. You have a wheat field for three years and then it, you know, plant oats for one year and regenerate the soil, increase the, uh, you get a bumper crop of wheat the following year. So it's a very mm. popular rotation crop. Except, you know, they have very little commercial value. Until right. now we, and we're certainly not alone, and many others too, that, that are starting coming up with high-end, you know, value-added food products that will start to generate more demand for food-grade oats. Did you have a question? Yeah, did you even try anything other than oats? We, we did. What was that process? We did. We, we, we tested all kinds of plants. So we excluded nuts and legumes, for example, for, for very obvious reasons. Lack of nutrients in nuts or legumes is typically very, uh, have a high degree of uh, um, allergies associated with it. So soybeans or peas, for example. We never looked at it. But we did look at a lot of different crops. And we went to Bolivia, we went to Africa, we looked at all kinds of plants, right? But uh, it landed in good old Oats. And that was in the early 90s? This is the early 90s, yeah. What was the market like then? 
That's a very good question because we had really no clue what to do with this invention. There was really very little market, right? And, and uh, our first approach was to launch this as a food ingredient. When I joined my brother in 1997, the very first thing I did was to do a deal with Danone, the major French yogurt producer. And they actually, in 1998, launched a yogurt in France with our product in it as an ingredient. And uh, they made a big push into plant-based yogurts already then. Uh, unfortunately for them, fortunately for us, they had an epic failure. They could not convince the French consumer at that time to switch from dairy to, to plant-based. So that forced us to do something very different. And that's when we decided just forget that strategy. Let's be the masters of our own destiny. Let's launch our own consumer brand and go all in and just show that R&D guy at Arla, you know, that he was wrong. And in 2001, we launched it. So for you here, you may not think of us as an old company, but we are an 18-year-old overnight successful. <laughs> <laughs> like all founder stories. Like all founder yeah. stories. So patience. If you get into the <laughs> food industry and want to start a company. So plant-based food is a really big thing right now. Yes. Did you say that? Uh, we've always believed it. We always believed but. It's sort of like, you know, nothing happened, nothing happened, nothing happens, then all at once, right? It's a little bit of that, what's going on. I think, logically, it, it's totally to be expected. It's just look at the macroeconomic development. We have to. We have to change, right? We have to go towards plant-based. Uh, that is sort of how do you make people, the hardest thing when you launch a product, if that product requires people to change habits, attitudes, you're up for a long road, uh, for a long uh, hike, right? And, and uh, that's what we discovered, obviously. And, and uh, now it's like a tipping point. I mean, I, have, I go back to Sweden every, you know, every so often. I meet all my old friends and say, you know, even the stalwarts that swore to me 20 years ago that I'm never ever gonna drink this horrible thing. Right? <laughs> now they're all consumers. In my home country, we have, what, 60, 70% of the dairy alternative market. Um, we're, so we're bigger than everybody else combined, right? And, and we have, I don't remember the exact number, but the household penetration is extremely high. The interesting thing there is that, which I think is a really good proof that we have something really, uh, uh, for the long term, uh, the long run, is that most of our consumers are also dairy consumers. So you pick our product for applications. Is it good enough to do the job, like in coffee? I think a lot of people will agree. I certainly think there's nothing better than an oat-lean coffee. It's even better than dairy. It gives, it enhances the coffee notes, and improves the coffee flavor. And, and dairy doesn't do that. And I think if you, you know, who's speaking, right? But uh, I think um, it was eye-opening for us when we, uh, uh, we, we always struggled with, with making an oatmeal performing coffee. It's extremely mm -hmm. difficult. It's rocket science, borderline. How do you make oat foam? Because oat doesn't foam. Mm -hmm. So, well, you know, it, it, there's some very natural and smart ways, tricks with enzymes that modify protein molecules in a very 
harmless way that can change properties. And that's now a number of patents around that that we have. And, and when we launched this, we worked with some baristas and coffee roasters um, uh, that happened to be in Sweden for financial reasons. But what they explained to me, I thought this is something I never forget, right? This guy, one of the most famous roasters, baristas in my part of the world, said, I spend my life searching the best coffee beans on the planet. I go there and I go all over the world, I find the perfect bean, you know, shade grown, all that good stuff. I bring it home, I put my soul into roasting it to perfection. I go to the, my coffee shop, I serve up my, you know, my, my, my cup here, and the customer wants almond milk in it. Yeah. That cuts all the notes that I spent, you know, the last ten. Are you months. judging me as I was pouring almond milk in my coffee back there? Yeah. We didn't have almond milk. I saw that. Yeah. <laughs> I saw you seeing. So it's my fault. It's my fault. No, but so it's, is it's, this? Oh, go ahead. It, it's interesting, right? And then you start looking into it. when you drink milk and coffee. You actually, if you think about it now, you're going to notice that you have a coating in your palate afterward. The milk protein that coats your palate. And if you're accustomed to milk, that's okay. We grew up with it, right? But now when you can start compare with an oat milk, you won't get that coating in your mouth. And that coating is actually not very pleasant. And it's sort of like, it's an acquired taste. And I think that's why we see now a lot of cafes, not least here in the US, throw out milk entirely. Wow, really? Because it tastes better. Yeah. So anyway. So was this part of our, go ahead. Um, did either you or your brother have like a background or academic training in molecular biology or horticulture? So my brother is a professor in food chemistry. So he, uh, in, in nutrition, food nutrition and food chemistry. So yes, he's, he's a scholar. And, uh, he has, before he did this, he had actually quite a few other, he's a very prolific uh, inventor. Just wanted to ask um, about the scale. What's the importance of scale in this business when um, you take a long time to educate people? Now that yeah. the money's there, where is the bottleneck? Where do you see the challenges when you want to scale it up? So, so scale has tremendous impact on economy, right? No doubt, uh, and, and that's easy to realize. It's a process industry. The more you can process through your plant. Uh, what what this differentiates us from all our competitors is that we have our technology, we have patents, we also have a lot of know-how, right? We study, we, we don't just use any oats, we're very particular about what kind of oats we use. And we've learned over the years how to process oats and maintain an even quality over the year. I mean, oat, it's an organic matter, if you keep it in the silo, it will change. It's not the same product in September as it will be in July, right? So how do you, how do you, uh, you know, accommodate for that and maintain an even quality to, to the extent you can? So there's a lot of know-how we built up, and that has stopped us from. We, we very early made a decision that we're never ever going to outsource our production because if we do, we will teach everybody else our trade secrets. Uh, that comes to a price, of course, and you're all paying the shortage, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know. Thursday mornings, Whole Foods. (laughs) 
Thanks for listening to the Wharton Alumni Founders and Funders podcast. To stay up to date on all the exclusive content for Wharton Founders and Funders, be sure to join the mailing list at hellowafa.org and connect with the community on LinkedIn. Until next time.